I really appreciated Joe David starting with the 51st Psalm. Um, and this is how the Holy Spirit works, I think. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that uh, this coming Wednesday, I'll be beginning a new series, a Bible class series on Psalms 51. And if, you, if you're not familiar with the 51st Psalm, wow, is it ever special. All of the 150 Psalms are special, but the 51st one is a prayer of contrition. It's a prayer of renewal, and we all need renewing, and we all need to have contrite hearts when we sin. And it's the perfect remembrance, a perfect reminder that uh, when we sin, God will listen to us, regardless of how heinous we might believe our sin is. King David went through a whole litany of mistakes and sins, and they were awful. But when he finally realized what he had done, then he was a man after God's own heart. Then he repented and he begged God for forgiveness. By the way, I want to thank um, Brother Ken Harmon for the last two Wednesday nights. For those of you who tune in to our Wednesday night uh, Bible studies, Ken led the last two. He's a great Bible teacher, isn't he? And I've so appreciated Ken over the years, and I thank him now for taking those two classes. <clears throat> This might be hard to see, especially if you're watching online. I'm not sure. Uh, this is sunset on the Sea of Marmara. Not one of those seas that, unless you're a geography buff, not many of, those, not many of us would know where this is located. I do, only because I lived there for about 18 months with a handful of other young men. The Sea of Marmara is just south of the Black Sea, and it really separates with the Black Sea through the Bosphorus Strait. It separates Asia from Europe. Just south of the Sea of Marmara is the Aegean Sea, and it's connected with the Straits of Dardanelles. So you've got three seas, Black Sea, Marmara, and the Aegean Sea, two uh, incredibly historical straits that divide it. Asia on one side, Europe on the other. I happen to be there uh, at 20 years old uh, with a handful of other young men intercepting Soviet transmissions in a former life. It happened to be 1970. <laughs> um, I was 20, so you can do the math, you know. Actually, nearly 21, turned 21 that year. In any case, uh, I was sharing the gospel in my little, and, and I say little, in, in, in the best way that I could. I really wanted to preach, even, I wanted to preach at age 12, but at age 20, I had three more years of service, duty, and so forth, and I realized I'd have to put all that off, but I can tell you that I did the very best I could with the handful of GIs that I was living with, and one of them, Larry Fred, one night about just after midnight, uh, we hardly ever took time off. We sort of worked, slept, worked, slept, that kind of a movement for 18 months until we were relieved. But anyway, I was sharing the gospel with Larry, and Larry said, you know, we're close to water. What hinders me from being baptized? And I thought, nothing. And so we walked down to the shores of Marmara, and we walked into the water. I can tell you that in Marmara, Mara, 
at least where we were, it wasn't a gradual shore where you could swim and kind of ease out, you know, a couple of inches and a foot and two feet. You went like from the side to we immediately were at four feet. I'm about six feet. I was six foot then. I'm a little bit shorter now. Time does that. But I was six feet tall. Larry's about 5'10". We walked out and we're already at this level. I take another foot. We drop down one more foot. So the water's about to my chin, and Larry is gurgling. He's gurgling. We're both 20 years old, and I said, and I'm thinking, I've got to do this right. My first baptism. So I wanted to take the good confession. And I'm telling the boy nearly drowned in the process, but, you know, do you believe that? Yeah, yeah. And finally he said, yes, yes, yes. And so I put my hand on the top of his head and pushed him about five inches. That was it. We come up out of the water. And Larry says, I died to sin, but you nearly killed me. <laughs> That's a true story, of course. I, I mean, in fact, I, I'll often embellish a story. None of that was embellished. That was, it was probably more colorful than I just explained it. Sea of Marmara. Church, I can tell you that baptism, not in today's world, has lost or in today's world, has lost its sense of urgency. This was just after midnight with Larry. And both he and I felt urgent. We didn't want to wait until the sun came up to really, you know, we stumbled down. We weren't far from the coast anyway, just a few meters. We stumbled down to the coast and... But, so I ask you, why, why in the world was there a sense of urgency for two young men, one receiving Christ for the first time, the other being blessed to share a few words? Why the urgency? I can tell you that in the New Testament, that you have the concept of baptism, the whole act of worship, there is a sense of urgency. Unlike in today's Christian world, there is a sense of urgency there was in the New Testament. Let me give you three quick examples, all of which you know about. Acts chapter 22, we have Paul um, explaining, providing his testimony of his, of his conversion, of the road to Damascus. That's recorded, by the way, in th three places, Acts chapters 9, 22, and 26. But in chapter 22, we have Paul defending himself before his fellow Jews, and he shares the whole story. And then he ends up in, 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 in Damascus, and Ananias, the prophet, the preacher, comes to Saul of Tarsus, and the scales, you know, fall off his eyes because he met Christ on the road, and he was blinded. He believed at that time. He was led to Damascus. The, he, he saw Ananias. Ananias shared a few words. The scales fell off by God's power. He could see again. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ananias says, and now... Why do you wait? Why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What time was it? It was just after midnight. Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer. What time was it? Midnight. There's something about that midnight hour. That's when Larry was baptized as well. Midnight, Paul and Silas are in prison, a, a, a Roman dungeon in Philippi. You know, and there they are. A great earthquake occurred. 
just threw the doors open, the shackles fell off, the Philippian jailer drew his sword to kill himself, take his own life, because he realized the prisoners had escaped. He might as well kill himself because if he doesn't, in the morning he will be killed. And Paul shouts out, don't harm yourself, we're still here. Now they had been singing and praying and the jailers hearing all of it. And don't you know that Paul shared the gospel in prayer and in song and probably through the prison door, through these bars. And the jailers hearing this, the earthquake occurs, shackles fall off, and the jailer realizes they're not gone, they're still here. And what does he do? He doesn't say, get back in the jail cell. He says, what must I do? To be saved. And Paul said, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You and your whole household. And then Luke records that very hour of the night, Paul leads the Philippian jailer to the nearest body of water he could find. And there he was baptized. Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian treasurer. We're going to get into our Galatians text in a moment, but Acts 8, with the Ethiopian treasurer, we find Philip the evangelist, and the Holy Spirit is with Philip, and the Ethiopian eunuch, who was the uh, treasurer for the queen of Candace, who was an Egyptian princess, he was on his way back home, you know. He had already been to Jerusalem. Why? Well, she had to go there, but he went there because he was a God-fearer. That's as far as he could go, by the way. Couldn't go any further. Why? Because he was a eunuch. And by Jewish law, he could never enter the waters of the mikvah. He could never be baptized. Jewish law prohibited all eunuchs from being baptized. But this man was a believer, a believer in Yahweh. But he could go no further. And don't you know that was frustrating to him? So Philip joins the chariot. And he asks, what are you reading? He said, Isaiah, do you understand it? No, how can I unless somebody guides me? And the Bible says from that point forward, Philip preached Christ. And sometime during the sharing of the gospel, you know he talks about this act of worship, this moment of baptism. So they come near water, and what does the eunuch say, the Ethiopian treasurer? He says, see, here's water. And then he stops and asks, is there anything that hinders me from being baptized? I can't be baptized into the Jewish faith. So is there anything that stops me? And Philip said, nothing. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And they left the chariot. They go into the water. Philip baptizes the eunuch, this Ethiopian treasurer. They come up out of the water. The Holy Spirit grabs, calls Philip to go evangelize another person. And the Ethiopian treasurer gets back in his chariot, giddy. He's happy. He's filled with joy. And he goes on his way rejoicing. I'll tell you, church, baptism, there's always been a sense of urgency with baptism, which, of course, begs the question, why? Why is there this sense of urgency? Well, Paul explains it in Galatians 3. He does it elsewhere as well in the New Testament. 
But in Galatians 3, he doesn't. And we've been going through the book of Galatians for the last uh, three Sundays when I was preaching. So we're right now in Galatians 3, verses 24 through 29, the text that Elijah Lides just read to us. Um, let me give once again this backup. There is a sense of urgency in the letter uh, as, as, as Paul's writing. He says in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, he said, um, I am astonished that you have so quickly deserted him. Go ahead and move on. I am astonished that you so quickly have deserted him who called you into the grace of Christ and followed a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who would trouble you and pervert the gospel of Christ. And then Paul adds, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you any gospel from that which we've already preached, let him be accursed. I said it then, I'll say it again. Paul, Paul reiterates, if we or an angel from heaven should preach any gospel other than that which you've already received, let him be accursed. Now what Paul does in these six chapters is he defends he explains those verses. Why in the world would you take the gospel of Christ, add anything to it like the law of Moses or any law whatsoever, and if you do that, you pervert it and you lose contact with God because now Christ is no longer your Savior. Now you're co-Savior with the Lord. And Paul says that's heresy. And he does his very best to, to help the Galatian churches understand the gospel which I preach to you is the only good news of Jesus. You must not uh, change it. You can't mess with it. You simply receive it by faith. So he does it by laying out the chapters. Chapters 1 and 2, he compares, by the way, the word, the key word is grace. He compares grace with, with the gospel, chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4, grace and the law. Chapters 5 and 6, grace in the Christian life. Under chapters 3 and 4, Paul sets out six arguments, but they all say the same thing. They all conclude in the same place. Christ saves you, not the law. It's important. And then what he'll do is he'll talk about the third argument, which we're going to spend the next 20 minutes on or so, and that is he says the, the law was our school teacher, was our custodian, and he compares baptism with that. So here's what the text says. So that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Wow. Let me back up. What Paul does is he says the law was your school teacher. Now tell me, I know adults go to school, but we're talking about in ancient times and even today. Who has a school teacher, a custodian, other than those who are under age. And so I've, I thought when I read this, I thought, okay, what really happens? 
what happens in baptism. Why is Paul using baptism? By the way, this is not a treatise on baptism. He's simply reminding the Galatian Christians of their baptism so they will understand this third argument. What happens in it? Well, he explains, you put on Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul very selectively uses a word in the original text, the word enduo. It, it's a verb in Greek, and it means to clothe. So literally, this reads, for as many of you as were immersed into Christ have clothed Christ. Interesting. And there is no doubt that he's making reference, I believe, to the truth day. You know, there are certain traditions we all have. At age 21, you can, um, I guess we can vote at age 18 in America. You can have a, your first drink at age 21. At age 16, you can get a driver's license. There are benchmarks. There's a bar mitzvah in the Jewish tradition at age 13 for the boys and a bat mitzvah at age 12 for the girls. There is the um, quinceanera in the Latino culture for these young Latina girls who turn 15. It's a special celebration. Every tradition, every culture has a tradition that says this is a moving on to adulthood. There's something different. And in Roman society, it was both boys and girls, but mostly with the boys, at age 15, their garments changed. They no longer wore the children's toga. The moment they turn 15, the father has the servants bring out the toga virilis. And it's an adult garment. And they're clothed with it. They're clothed with it. In Luke chapter 15, if this is not an aside, I think it'll preach. In Luke 15, we have the prodigal son. You know the story well. He had two sons, the elder son, the younger son. The younger son insisted on his inheritance early. He goes off to a foreign land, and there he squanders. And so he, he puts this little speech together. He says while he's in the foreign land, he loses his fortune. He's feeding off what the pigs eat. And he thinks, man, my father's servants have bread enough to spare. And here I languish in this land. I will go back to my father. And I will say, Father, I have sinned before you and before heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants, like the custodian. By the way, the custodian of a Roman son was a servant. But until that boy reached age 15, the custodian had all the power over the future heir, but he wasn't the heir yet. He was still a boy. And so the servant, by orders of the father, you have complete power over my son. But the moment the father puts on the toga of Aurelius, the custodian, the school teacher, becomes a slave again. The master of the house is the 15-year-old boy and his father. They speak with the same word. And you have in the prodigal son, the son returning, knowing that he doesn't deserve to be a son. And what does the father do? He runs out to greet him as he comes, as he sees him coming down the trail. And what does he, first words out of his mouth. He, he won't listen to the speech. 
And the first words out of his mouth are to his servants. Quickly, bring the best robe and put it, bring my robe and put it on him. Put my signet ring on his finger. Put my shoes on his feet. For this, my son was lost and he's found again. He was dead and now he is alive. And they went and they celebrated, not as a servant, but as a, as a son. And that's what God as the, does. I'll tell you, church, in baptism, when we clothe Christ, God is putting the toga virilis around us. And the toga virilis is Christ. For as many of you as were immersed into Christ have been clothed, not with Christ, been clothed Christ. That's why we are heirs. So the first thing that happens, it happened to me when I was 12. I just didn't comprehend a lot of it. But I got the jest. I understood that I was growing up, that I was no longer a child in, in, in faith. Now I was an heir. I understood that. You put on Christ. Not only do you put on Christ, but you become one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither a slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you, not only in the ancient world, in today's world as well, but certainly in the New Testament world, it was divided. There were free people and there were slaves. There were men and there were women. There was, you know, Jews and there were all the other nations. There was this, it was very divisive. They, they lived in a caste system where someone is always better than you, smarter, more money, uh, different gender, whatever you fill in the blank. And there was, this, there was this caste system. And Paul wants to remind the Galatians who probably many of them weren't even Roman citizens. Some of them might have been slaves and servants. He reminds them when the Father, when God put the toga virilis around you, Christ, now we're one. There is no nationality. Tell me in your families, of however many children you may have, do you love one more than the other? You have boys and girls, you have some smart, some, you know, maybe not as smart, some tall, some short, whatever. It, does anything matter? Are they your sons and daughters? Absolutely. Are they equal? Absolutely. And Paul reminds the Galatian churches, why in the world would you forfeit that? Would you give that up and return to being a servant? and return to being a female in the ancient world, and return to being unequal with everyone else around you. So Paul says, listen carefully. The law that you want to return to was the school teacher. Your father has set you aside. You've grown up by faith in Christ Jesus, and you have clothed Christ you are one in Christ. God, show no, God shows no partiality, Acts 10, verse 34. 
If the church, you know, there are those who complain about the Bible not condemning slavery. Oh, church, trust me, the Bible does condemn slavery. It condemns it by God's family. That's the example that God gives to humanity. In God's family, there are no slaves. In God's family, there are no servants, you know, sub, sub, um, subordinate to somebody else. In God's family, there's not even nationalities. There isn't race. There isn't male nor female. You are God's child. No matter what position you may hold in the family, you think, you think uh, uh, Ronnie is any less a child of God than Stephen Bridges or Tim Partlow because they're shepherds or than, you know, Brother Witt because he happens to share a few. Absolutely not. It's ridiculous. And that's what Paul's wanting to communicate. We are one in Christ and we are clothed in Christ and we are heirs to the promise. And if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. What promise? What has Jim inherited when he became a Christian? What promise? Ah, it's a good question. The promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. When God said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all nations. Read the context. Through you, I'm going to save all of humanity. Through your seed. We realize now the seed was the seed of faith to the promise, but through Abraham, that's the promise. It's the same promise Paul spoke of in Romans eleven twenty six that through Christ, through the toga virilis, through the robing, all of Israel will be saved. The very first gospel sermon, you want to go back and find out what's really important? Listen to the first message ever preached following the glorious resurrection. The Apostle Peter says to thousands of Jews, now not Gentiles, thousands of Jews, when he writes, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is to you and to your children. Now he's coming to you and me. And to all those who are far off, to everyone whom the Lord God has called to him. What is the promise? The promise is that we are going to be clothed Christ's. That we are going to be one with God the Father and together. That we are going to be heirs to the promise. What's the promise? I'm going to save you. So here we are in the family of God. We have put on Christ in baptism. We are one in Christ, and we are heirs to the promise. Church, baptism, and this is so important to comprehend. If you don't get anything else in the course of the message, listen to this. Baptism is an act of grace. It was never a work. 
a Roman son did absolutely nothing to earn the toga virilis. Nothing. He was born, and then he just kind of grew. It's the, it was a gift from the father. When the young man turned 15, there was also a ceremony for the daughters. When the young man turned 15, the father took his toga virilis and completely wrapped his boy. Everybody's witnessing this. That's why baptism needs to be public. Everyone's witnessing. Do you think the custodian was there? Do you think his school teacher was there? Oh, yes. And the moment he's clothed with his father's robe, everyone realizes he's the master of the house. He's the son of the father. It's an act of grace. So I trust this morning that we will do one of two things. We will either be reminded of our baptism, realizing that we have put on Christ. We have been clothed Christ. That we are one, universal, worldwide. We are one in the family of God. And we are all heirs to the promise. And we will be saved because no one can change that. No one. Perhaps we could if we choose to, which by Paul's writing Galatians, but that would be foolish. That's why he says in Galatians 3.1, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But we're not bewitched. We love it. And who do we give the glory to? God. We haven't earned a thing. We've simply accepted the gift with joy. The other thing is, if you've never, never been immersed with Christ, is there any better time? I mean, if you want to call me at midnight, okay, we can make it a midnight moment, but we could also make it a moment right now. So if anyone sitting in the sanctuary right now, out here in this auditorium, if anyone thinks, you know, I've never been baptized, but I believe in the Lord Jesus. Wow, you need to complete this moment. You need to bring it all together. And it, the whole family needs to witness it. So I beg you in the name of Jesus that you'll simply respond. I'm going to ask in just a moment for two or three of our shepherds to walk forward, and we're going to kind of go back for just today, maybe later. It, it, it's always their decision, and I completely support it. But we're going to go back to the way that we have done things in the past. If you'd like to have the prayers of the church, if you'd like to rededicate yourself and renew your body, Psalms 51, renew your soul. If you'd like to, to even place membership with this local family, but most importantly, if you've never been immersed in Christ and clothed Christ, this is a great opportunity. And I trust that we'll all listen to the Lord and obey in the name of Christ. Let us stand and sing. Amen.